Welcome to the second season of The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Narina DeSoma, a fourth-year medical student at University of Illinois College of Medicine at Peoria. And I'm Hannah Claude, a second-year medical student at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. We work with a great team of students, residents, and attendings using the Power Podcasts to explore topics in interventional radiology. As the host of today's episode, we hope you find it both educational and enjoyable. We're very excited to introduce this next episode of The Sound of IR, in which Hannah and I will host an episode about life as a leader and a parent in IR with Dr. Barbara Hamilton, an interventional radiologist at Desert Regional Medical Center in Palm Springs, California. Hannah, one thing I loved about this episode was um, talking with Dr. Hamilton about her blog and the awareness and uh, community that she's developed um, uh, in particular about financial empowerment. Yes, I love that part. I think it's definitely something that isn't talked about that should be. So I love how she was able to introduce us to that topic and then point us to her blog where we can learn a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Something else that I loved was how she was really emphasizing the fact that we need to make sure that people know um, of our successes and of the hard work that we put in, you know, um, so that we don't go missed when there's a job opportunity or a leadership position opening. So I, I, I really like that. I completely agree. And, and that just goes to show you how um, she's been able to achieve such incredible leadership positions, just following those guidelines and, uh, and living her professional life in that way. Absolutely. So without further ado, here it is. Dr. Hamilton, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to say, I think what you're doing is wonderful. I think podcasting is a wonderful medium to spread the word about our specialty and what you're doing is so smart. Well, thank you. And you're doing a tremendous amount of work on your end as well to create awareness about the field. So we're, we're absolutely um, excited to have you on here. Thank you. So, so to get things rolling, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your path to becoming an IR? Of course. So I'm a first-generation physician. Uh, My parents each emigrated from Eastern Europe, and so I'm the first U.S. physician, I guess. I did have an aunt in in communism. It was more common for women to become physicians, so there was one back in the family history. Um, I'm the first physician in the U.S. here in my family. Um, In high school, I volunteered at the local hospital, and I uh, did that between summer jobs and I just, I set my sights on becoming a PA or a physical therapist because I saw people who looked like me who were doing that. Basically, I saw women who were doing that. Mm. And I was a biology major in college and I, I just really liked the silent sciences and sailed through those classes. So I knew I would do something science related. Um, in medical school, I didn't yet have any awareness of the field of radiology. So I feel like I was really lucky because during the second year of classes in our pathophysiology class, a female radiologist who later became a mentor um, came to talk to us about how to read a chest x-ray and how to find where a pneumonia is located. And I just thought that the visuospatial reasoning that she was teaching us was so amazing and it made sense to me. And so I just was hooked from that point on. So I went on to do a third year radiology elective. And during that time, I was introduced 
to interventional radiology. And I actually walked into an IR cursing his way through a fistulogram. And it's just really funny to think about now because it was the least interesting case that sometimes we think of the, you know, they're just drudgery kind of cases. And it was not a really flattering view of interventional radiology, but just the way he was driving through the body under imaging guidance was absolutely phenomenal to me. And it was, it was like some sort of video game and I knew I was in right away. That's incredible. I think it's so wonderful that you had that um, that exposure um, in the second year to diagnostic radiology with that um, female radiologist who later served as a mentor, and then that you also had the opportunity to do an elective as, as a third year. Um, these are, I, I know, main um, topics of conversation in SIR, just how to get medical students exposed to radiology and IR as soon as possible. So that's great. Mm-hmm. It was not a required elective at my medical school, but I, I'm definitely a proponent of that because we need more people in the pipeline. Agreed. Um, so you mentioned uh, some of this incredible mentorship that you've had. Um, what were some obstacles in your road specifically um, to IR? And yeah, that's a good question. I think the specialty choice is so personal and there's so much soul searching that needs to happen at such a stressful point in your life. So you're accumulating med school debt and just diving into the red. I remember being up some nights thinking about it because I could just couldn't fathom the large numbers that I was accumulating of debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question really is, where do I fit in? So my favorite rotations were radiology and family medicine, as divergent as those sound. Um, Actually, I kind of identify with that too, honestly. Really? Um, Yeah. There's the clinical aspect that IR is growing towards, which I think is amazing, which is starting to marry those two specialties together. So I think um, definitely what I'm hearing from some of the past attending, some of the different pods that uh, some of the different interviews that we've had with people, it used to be very separate, you know, the clinical aspect and then sort of the procedural aspect of IR. But I think you can correct me if I'm wrong. Those two are becoming one. And we're getting to see both the clinical aspect and procedural aspect of IR wrapped into one specialty. I never made that connection. And that's a really good observation. So I don't feel like such a freak of nature anymore because I just thought those were the most two different possible specialty choices. And then uh, choosing IR, I think a lot of us are surgically minded. So I felt like in my clerkships that in my clerkships, I was accepted on my surgery and my OBGYN rotations. Um, And in medicine, I was like a square peg in a round hole. So, um, and ultimately I chose radiology. So, and then um, as far as obstacles, I would say, you know, it's just a male dominated field. So there's an undercurrent of that. And um, in residency, it was just very competitive for better or worse. And there's a sort of sibling rivalry dynamic. I'm not sure if that's at every program or just happened to be prominent at my program. Mm-hmm. Um, since it was sort of a guy's environment, there was like a lot of a lot of the bonding between cases was like talking about sports. And I'm just not a sports person. Like I was into triathlons and running. So like these people wanted to talk about like basketball and football and I just could not care less. Um, so I would say that was kind of a barrier to like 
just fitting in initially. And um, we all want to do that as we're under stressful um, circumstances. Um, but my obstacles to IR, I'd say they've been partially internal, partially external. IR has its own subculture. So at my program, you were either an IR or you weren't. And in general, girls weren't. I mean, there were no female IRs in our geographic area, and there hadn't been a female fellow at our institution for over a decade. Oh, um, wow. And that's, yeah, and that's at three fellows per year. So something was telling me, like, is there something they know that I don't? Like, why am I interested in this and no women are going into this? And the ladies who were years ahead of me, there would always be two, one or two out of seven each year who were women in each class. Um, and they always went into women's imaging until finally the girl the year ahead of me went into neuroradiology. I thought, yeah, she's breaking this trend. <laughs> IR was just kind of the most male field you could possibly choose. So there was just this feeling of, you know, why, why are women avoiding IR? Is there something that I should, should I be listening to these people who tell me that IR isn't for, as good for women? Um, and so I think I waited for a while to declare myself. Mm -hmm. So as you went through the, your um, IR training, did you find any of these suppositions like supported by things that you saw uh, throughout your training? In residency, I would say um, over time, as I became a more senior resident, I felt accepted by the IR department. And of course, I was able to declare my interest over time. So they kind of embraced me. And of course, it was still this competitive environment, but I feel like, you know, I was embraced by the fellows. I was mm -hmm. as a valuable member of the team, and I was embraced by one of the attendings who became like a mentor. I still talk to him now. Mm -hmm. um, so, and actually, one of the, one of the salient moments, I would mm -hmm. say, that was like a make or break moment, this... Um, there was a woman a few years ahead of me who was really, she expressed a lot of interest in IR and she ended up bailing on IR at the last minute and she went into women's imaging mm. and she yeah. had some personal reasons. She had a couple of kids already and she was a single mom. And I think part of her decision was, um, you know, she'll just have a more predictable yeah. schedule, mm -hmm. but it was seen as this kind of, by some of the guys in the department, it just, you would hear bits and pieces of conversations like, oh, you know, so-and-so didn't, she didn't pursue IR. She wasn't for real. And so by the time I declared my interest, I remember one of my nicest attendings, um, just a stand-up guy in general. But when I told him that I wanted to go into IR, he actually said, yeah, right. Ah, Oh, and this terrible. is terrible. I mean, it's if you hear that from a run-of-the-mill jerk, it's one thing. But if you hear it from a guy you kind of look up to, it's a different thing. So, um, yeah, and it, I feel like it was because of that experience they'd had where they invested in someone a little bit. And I think, who knows, maybe they took it personally. Um, <laughs> so how did, how did you handle that? I wouldn't even know what to do. Yeah, so um, one of the other guys, so I, I'm just realizing they all mentored me in their own way. Um, mm -hmm. the, uh, one of the younger attendings who was kind of known for having a bristly personality, he decided that he was um, going to take me under his wing, mm -hmm. and I was sort of working on a research project with him. I was trying to get together um, like a retrospective vena cava filter study and just failing miserably, but anyway... Ethan took me to lunch one day and we just went to a place for a sandwich like two blocks from the hospital. And 
we had a conversation and I told him about my hesitation and he just said to me, you are not so-and-so. I'm not going to name that name, but you know, you're not that other girl. And this is your own decision basically Mm -hmm. is what he was telling me. And I just, that moment, I still remember it. And I just pulled it dear because it was really, is so great to hear that from some, you know. Yeah. No, I, I, that really strikes a chord with me because I feel like um, one of the most dangerous things for our um, like sense of acceptance in the field is having like a single story. Like if, if mm-hmm. our male colleagues have a single story about what it's like to be a mm-hmm. female in IR, they, they can't possibly fathom how um, women can have different experiences or different relationships with the field. And if they saw that, like you were saying, that previous um, um, resident um, or fellow um, kind of switch and go, they're like, oh, they're all going to be like that. Well, that's exactly. just a, a very narrow-minded, um, you know, view into the wide world of, of what women have done in IR. So it's, it's terrible. I think yeah. it's pervasive in medicine. And I think that's a problem that a lot of high power women who go on, who have these full fledged careers run into is that they're expected to be like a representative for all of women. And of course this previous resident didn't deserve that either. She deserved to make her own decisions. Sure. But it just, it, then it fell to me to be (laughs) the next one. Right. Absolutely. Um, Another thing before I forget that I really enjoyed hearing uh, you talk about was just the, the feeling of, um, of not being able to relate to your co uh, co fellows uh, or attendings, just the fact that they all bonded over sports. Like I just finished interview season, and there was one interview in particular where they were all talking about their favorite superheroes. And I was at this dinner, <laughs> and I was just thinking to myself, I wish I could contribute to this conversation, <laughs> but I don't have anything to say. <laughs> Wait, are you just supposed to say Wonder Woman, like just be the token female and give the right. token female answer? It's so hard. <laughs> exactly. So that's why it's so important to have diversity in, in all fields, just you know, mm-hmm. a variety of things to relate to others on. Oh, yeah. And that I think it was a function of also being in New England where lots of people want to talk about sports. So that was another reason. I was just kind of like a square peg in a round hole. So <laughs> so um, as of right now, where are you now in your in your current practice setting? I'm in my fifth year in private practice in Palm Springs, California. So it's a very different setting. And I've actually stayed at my first job out of training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the statistics are something like uh, many move after the first year. And I forget if it's something like a third or a half. It's a lot. Um, did you have a strong indication when you first accepted that job that it was the perfect fit that you would be there for a long time? Or is that something that developed uh, over your first year? <laughs> That's such a good question. So over the first couple of years, it was a nightmare. Um and so that's the <laughs> the oversimplified version. So for whatever reason, Southern Cal- the Southern California desert outside of Los Angeles is not a magnet area. It's just really hard to recruit. And I was brought here at a fellowship at UCLA um, in a time where the radiology market was very tight. And it was a period where a lot of attendings, their portfolios had crashed in the previous, you know, 2008 the job market was still really tight because a lot of people who were meant to retire didn't retire on time. 
And um, so this was initially my only job offer. And then I subsequently had another one in Washington state, but this was just better for my husband and I. And when I first came here, because we were understaffed, I mean, I was working a ton. So I would, I think it's a great way that you phrased it, it became a great job over time. And that's not going to be true of all jobs that are burning you out. It was a complete burnout schedule. It was, it was really over the top. I was basically cued to, I was, I'd be on around the clock for like three weeks straight. So it just was not a good situation. And sometimes I became like angry all the time, but if that happens to you, it's not you, it's the job. That's good to know because uh, the, around this time is when um, the fellows are looking for jobs or, or ha- already um, have jobs or are about to sign. So it's, it's really nice to hear um, that story, just what you were experiencing after um, your training, because I know they're going through it right now. Mm-hmm. It's been incremental progress. Like every year has been better. And after my baby was born, I have a 16-month-old now. And I just made it a point. I had been working so much, and then they had gone to all this trouble to find multiple locum tenants to cover my maternity leave. And so they had all these people on the docket, and I figured I'm just going to take one month, off, one week off every month, and I'm just going to be a stay-at-home mom those weeks. And I was making, you know, plenty of money. So taking a week off per month was just a great way to balance things and they don't consider me part-time or anything like that. It's just, I was so overworked before. It just seemed like a natural progression and I'm moving forward. I'm not sure if I'll continue that kind of a schedule, but Mm -hmm. I mean, they've been very flexible and it's a far cry from where I started. That's great to hear that you have been able to like grow into that and to, and that your um, company has worked with you to make those things possible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. They said, as long as we have coverage, we'll give you off anything you ask. So I basically just work as much as I want. Oh, that's great. This, uh, this um, leads us into one of, uh, one of our uh, questions about negotiation. Um, I know you previously wrote about your um, aggregated experience negotiating over five years on your blog. Could you um, briefly go over some of your negotiation um, thoughts? Sure. I think this is so important because um, it's a part of personal finance that we are not um, indoctrinated with when we're getting all this other medical training. So um, I have taken it upon myself to read business books and just study up on negotiation. So um, I think it's really important that everybody considers doing that. Um, nobody can negotiate for you. You can't really outsource this. Um, and it's a, it's something that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but in medicine, people are making a lot of money off you. So if you're an employee or, um, even a contractor, people are making, they're making money on your work and you just need to realize that that's a business. This is not, other people don't have the altruistic intentions necessarily that you have as the provider. So I just think it's so important. I really like that. That's such a a raw and true um, perspective on something that sometimes we don't think about because, you know, we're in the medical field. Everyone has their best at heart. But like you said, there, there is a business to it. There is, you know, someone is profiting off of our work as well. And so we need to be realistic about that too. Mm hmm. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's so important, like you said, to um, to ask for things, um, to ask for things that are going to make you a better physician, make you a better person for your family. Um, and just asking is really the first step, right? Because I feel like I would potentially be scared to just even ask. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And so just reading some of these business text, texts, for example, it's, uh, you know, the the things that you didn't read because we didn't get an MBA. And some of my classmates did, and that's super smart. But these are just, they're, we don't even think in some of these ways that other people um, have learned to think. And I, as you said, Narina, I mean, this is taking care of your family. So for me, I'm the primary breadwinner. I make multiples of what my husband makes many, many times over. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm the breadwinner. This is for my family. This is my son's future. This is, you know, I, there was this old thinking that, you know, people don't rely on the woman's income. Well, that's very archaic thinking. And some people are still used to thinking in archaic, archaic ways, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Like we just need to be aware that there are these societal tropes sometimes that are hanging around. Um, and to not fall into them. So when you were going through your negotiation, did anyone ever, you know, think of you in a negative way because you were, you know, sort of standing your ground and really wanting to get the pay that you think you deserve? Did anyone think of you as sort of pushy or anything like that? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, they did. I was actually called money hungry. Uh -huh. And that was another right. formative moment. We're just, we're hitting all the highlights. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that once you get through a comment like that, I think you could get through a mm -hmm. lot of things. And um, so there are so many things that are challenging about medicine. You could have a patient die on you. Another thing that can happen is someone can call you greedy. Mm -hmm. um, and just going through medical school, you're such strong people. These are things that you can get through. So, um, and of course, being called money hungry during a negotiation is in no way appropriate. So I actually received an apology mm -hmm. for that. And now the guy who said that he sings my huh. praises. I mean, I love that. Day and night, <laughs> he says, yeah. So now he's like our regional COO and he, um, every time I ask for an increase, I do it regularly. Um, he just says, Oh, you should get whatever you want. Ooh, oh, wow. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. So you have to get through some of these pain points, too, you know, because at that moment, it was like, oh, the world was crashing down because I was so, I mean, it's embarrassing or you want to question yourself. Am I money hungry? Am I just going too far? And you don't know what other people are asking for or what other people are getting all the time. And maybe you think you've gone too far, but usually that's not the case. Well, you've clearly demonstrated to your employers uh, time and time again, your worth. Um, and just to kind of transition us into how you became the chief of IR and the vice chair of radiology. Is that correct? Those are your correct titles. Mm -hmm. um, so they are. Okay, good. Just want to make sure. Um, so how did you come into these positions? So I want to preface this by saying I'm sort of a big fish in a little pond at this point. Like I said, the Southern California mm -hmm. desert is its own little community. And so I'm out in the community. And so, um, you know, I, I was able to obtain these titles pretty early in my career. And I don't think that's doable in every institution or every location because there's just more competition. And so 
in my case, I mean, so there's a bit of, um, I don't want to write it off as luck because women do that all the time, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I became the chief of IR by being, I was the most visible and proactive clinical IR at my institution for a few years after training. And I became basically the main, the face of the department just by being around and working so much, as I mentioned. And I earned the respect and the the trust of the various services like oncology and trauma by doing that. So I was just around. I knew all the hospitalists. Um, And then, but I was right out of fellowship. So um, the gentleman who had basically hired me, he had brought the IR department from pick lines up to where it was at that point, which was a full-fledged IR service. And then I took it further by making it more clinical because he was a little bit more of the, um, the previous school where it was more, you know, uh, abbreviated consults and just plowing through the work. And mm-hmm. uh, I guess I just made it a bit more clinical and I just dev- kind of picked up where he left off. He went to work at another institution and I just became the most visible person there. And then as a result of that, by the time I had been at the practice for a few years, I, it, they actually promoted me to chief of the department during my maternity leave, which I was just flabbergasted by that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And then vice chair, that was... So that was almost an extension. So a friend of mine, I I write about him on my blog. He's the one that I wrote the piece work husband about. Um, So he was vice chair of the department. And when he left to move to Northern California, he left just a leadership void. And so I write about that also in leadership lessons. Um, There's just a degree of sticking around long enough to, to where there's a leadership void and you can fall in sometimes. And so that's how I have these titles. And I think one of the other things that you mentioned, which I want to echo, is just that you put in the hard work and you made yourself available and you showed your face for the hard work that you did put in. And I think that's come up um, when we interviewed Dr. Solberg, um, that she said that she made it known to other people of the work that she was doing. And I think that's really important because sometimes it can, uh, you know, you sort of, oh, yeah, I did that. But you don't really, you know what I mean? You didn't really take full ownership of that hard work that you put in. But I like how you said that you became the face of the IR department. I think that's really Mm -hmm. powerful. Yeah. And your diagnostic colleagues appreciate that as well. As an aside, I mean, you do become the face of the department. They rely a lot on the diagnostic people too. And they come down and go over studies in person and they go to tumor board. And, but I'm at tumor board whenever I can make it. And, uh, and, uh, you, you really are as the IR, you're, uh, the public relations manager. Yeah, I appreciate that perspective a lot. And just with the direction that the field is going with the new residency and the the focus on the clinical aspect, I feel like that's only going to strengthen and hopefully the mm-hmm. um, IR residency will, will only attract those types of people that are going to be like you, like outward facing and um, working well with others, um, creating a good um, face for the field. Mm-hmm. I think it just helps to establish the trust that people feel in our field. You know, the more visible we are. Yeah. It's a good thing. I agree. Um, So uh, you've done an incredible job um, managing people in this new role, and I'm sure that's come with its fair share of obstacles. Um, So I think uh, if you wouldn't mind just uh, 
talking about this idea of, of how to manage people. What pointers do you have? Uh, I know it's a huge topic, but um, on how to manage people um, as, a, as a leader. Absolutely. So as physicians, we are all leaders. We need to lead our teams. And so it's just really interesting when you're coming out of training and you don't have any gray hairs and you need to start directing people who are all older than you. And so it's a bit of a fine line sometimes. (laughs) And then, you know, for better or worse, maybe that's affected by being a female as well. Um, And so it's been a learning process for me. But I try to encourage like autonomy, autonomy and autonomous thinking as much as possible in my team so that they can function on their own and just so they take ownership. So um, with that said, I've made a lot of mistakes over the years. And so that's, you know, we're, we're working to get better every day. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, one thing that um, I really appreciate about a good leader is the ability to recognize one's own mistakes Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of, um, obstacles, um, what have been some of the largest obstacles that you've had to face uh, in your current role as chief? Yeah. So not having your own IR practice, which most people will be in a practice where there's hospital staff. Um, you don't have any control over hospital staffing. So that's kind of a, can be a slap in the face to a new person coming out of training. You just, you can be the last one to know that a nurse was fired or your favorite nurse is now per diem. I mean, it's kind of a drag to not have control over that. And so every time you have nursing turnover, um, with techs in my department, we don't have that problem of turnover. They tend to stick around. But with nurses, they come and go, and so you're constantly training them again. And so by the time they know what you like or what you need, what lab values you need, what if the patient needs to be on antibiotics for a certain procedure, then they're gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually expect our nurses to circulate as well. So by the time we teach them where the wire is, it's like sometimes they're gone. <laughs> So that's been hard um, and definitely would be a seductive reason to open your own practices or just one of the things that you can control. You could, you know, get great people and retain them, but something, not something you have control over in a hospital setting. What's the um, dynamic between, uh, since you're at a hospital, between other sub-surgical specialties and the IR Mm -hmm. department? Um, that's been one of the challenges recently. We had one procedure um, which was being abused by the urologists, actually. And so they were asking us to put in suprapubic catheters without actually seeing the patient in person. And I just felt like this was really sticking our necks out liability-wise. And there were times mm-hmm. where patient would have edema or something. They couldn't find the urethra. So a nurse would try an ER physician would try to catheterize the physician from the patient from below and they couldn't get it. But, you know, urologists are trained to find the urethra all day, every day. So, you know, but they would be busy at some other hospital. So they were trying to get us to just put in these super pubic catheters and that's an invasive procedure. Um, And so we had to put together a list of guidelines for that. 
and it was very contentious. The leader of that urologic practice was very contentious, went right to the chief operating officer of the hospital, um, just kind of a fiery personality and just unfortunate personality. Uh, but, you know, mom says no, so go to dad was his, uh, I guess, his approach. And so they came to us just sort of complaining and saying, well, urology is going to pull their call coverage if you don't do this. And that's just not appropriate. So um, that was actually a win for us. We were able to put together these guidelines, which I think are just going to improve patient care. I mean, the patients need to be evaluated by a urologist before we put in these catheters. And there are certain scenarios where IR or image guidance is beneficial, like a very obese patient, for example. Um, so now that we have these guidelines in place, I mean, they kind of, they seem to have silently accepted this, although they said they didn't, but we've been abused less. And so that's kind of an, um, IR is known for being a dumping ground sometimes. And as wonderful of a field as it is, this is, you know, that is a facet that we need to deal with. Mm-hmm. But I, with that story, and I agree completely, it, I've, I've read about, you know, the sort of big problems, mm-hmm. turf wars, and the, um, like you said, the dumping ground. Um, I've read about it on different blogs um, within the IR community. But I think that your example is such an eloquent and um, poetic way of solving that problem and showing that it can be solved um, if you sort of reach across specialties. And although it's kind of nasty and dirty a little bit but in the end like you said it's all to improve patient mm-hmm. care anyways so if they have a problem with that you know right if there's two competing um priorities and, and and one is that you don't have enough urologists to cover your area and the other one is compromising patient care i mean the patient care is going to win with the COO. absolutely and of course we're physicians too we're not just doing procedures because they're ordered we're not you know, putting in a Foley catheter like a nurse, this is an invasive procedure. Mm-hmm. And so I really had to put my foot down. And of course, I crowdsourced this with my guys. I have three other IRs that I was, we were all putting our heads together, wording this together, optimizing it. Mm-hmm. We had the buy-in of our radiology department. So it was really a team effort. I love that. I think this is so amazing to hear just to see how it can be resolved and how, you know, IR, the IR department can stand up for itself and hold its own against some of these big gun subspecialties, mm-hmm. other subspecialties. Mm-hmm. They do hold a lot of political power, that group, <laughs> because, you know, we need them too. But um, yeah, it, it, right. and there's the dynamic of because the radiology group is contracted with the hospital, it's a different dynamic than just the urologists who are independent physicians who are viewed as being the physicians who bring the money into the hospital because they they refer the patients and they get the surgeries Mm -hmm. in, whereas we're viewed as more of an ancillary service at times Mm -hmm. as an extension of radiology. And so I think they felt that they could leverage Mm -hmm. that to sort of push us around. Um, But at the end of the day, I mean, we have to do what's right for the patient. And I was actually able to avoid a couple of inappropriate procedures by using these guidelines. Well, that's great. Yeah. I love that you're rewriting, you know, the definition of what is and isn't an IR for your particular hospital and sort of erasing some of those preconceptions by other specialties. Mm -hmm. We are definitely a collaborative service. So one of the urologists, he, he completely agreed with us 
and he uses us, he calls us, he does a physician to physician consultation over the phone or in person and tells us why he needs our help because the patient's BMI is 35 or because he's going to, you know, and he takes ownership that he's going to exchange the catheter once the tract is mature in the office. This, he's not just sending us the ER patients where the ER calls us with their hair on fire um, because that was really a bad situation. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's so obvious to see how you climbed the, the ladder to these powerful leadership positions because of your mentality and the way that you look at things and you take action. So I just applaud you and I just oh, so admire what you're doing. Thank you so much. Hi, listeners. This is Subash Goody, producer for The Sound of IR. Thanks for joining us for our first episode of the season. You can catch part two of our interview with Dr. Barbara Hamilton in a future episode. Coming soon. Stay tuned, everyone.